early on in meditation, it can be confusing as to what the point even is um, of sitting down and closing one's eyes and setting aside 10 or 15 or 20 minutes or an hour, however long we choose to meditate for. And uh, Sam Harris goes so far as to say that you don't even get credit for it in the way that we might think of as getting credit for other things in our lives. And I think he says that in order to dispel the this idea of becoming a meditator, as that can be a common trap early on in meditation where we pick up this new habit and then we start to think of ourselves as special or unique in some way. And in a sense, that means that we're just kind of building another identity as this more spiritually evolved being or however that ends up looking for us, which as it turns out is um, actually counter to some of the efforts that we might make in the latter stages of spiritual practice where we start to see through all of our identities to the fact of this experience itself being all that there really is and ever was. And so our self-images, our self-projections, our concepts that we've been clinging to for our identity, the construction of our, our unique identities, those start to go away and reveal this much more expansive and boundless and intriguing and compelling and peaceful way of being in the world. So I understand why Sam Harris would want to say you don't get any credit for meditating, but I still have a bone to pick on that because uh, you do get some, there are effects that aggregate physiologically because we know that the more we use our brains in a certain way, the more we use our bodies in a certain way, the more adapted we become to those habits. And Joseph Goldstein hits the nail on the head with, I don't know what sutra this is from, but he talks about how the inclination of the mind tends to tilt toward that which it spends a lot of time doing, which is a fancy way of saying you do something a lot, your brain will tend to want to or to uh, default to that. And this is no ambiguous statement. It's quite certain that we myelinate um, pathways in our minds that are frequently used. So we're developing thicker cables in these neuron connections in our, in our brains for the habits and thoughts and uh, motor functions that we frequently rely upon. And the opposite is true for those that we infrequently use. Those tend, tend to decay. So if we have this practice where we are sitting daily for 10 minutes, then we're experiencing some amount of focused awareness for that time, even if it's just the awareness of being distracted for 10 minutes. And for me, that was true for years. Like I was just sitting there realizing over and over again, wow, my mind just won't shut up. Uh, and that's distracting and I'm not doing a good job of this. And I had all these expectations of what uh, meditation could or should be. 
And I think to some extent, maybe that's just kind of necessary for most people in the early stages is just to get tossed about by the mind while being identified as the mind until maybe just through randomness, we happen to stumble into these pockets of calm, silence, nothingness or stillness of the mind, which can be so refreshing and compelling, which will uh, motivate additional practice along with any other experiences that might crop up along the way spirit experiences of awe or wonder in the face of natural beauty, just staring at the stars, or if we happen to have uh, participated in some kind of a plant or spiritual ancestral medicine or something like that along those lines, something psychedelic, then the state we might experience with those compounds might also motivate further practice. So the point of this episode really is to reinforce the value of consistent long-term practice, even if it's just 10 minutes a day, in order to have it so that those pathways in our brains, those cables are getting thicker, not thinner. And what are they the cables of? They're the cables of psychological freedom in the face of disaster. I'm listening to a lot of Rumi right now. He was a Sufi poet from, I think, the 1200s. And really resonates with me because he doesn't balk at any subject matter, it would seem, including those that are just kind of raunchy and sexual and crazy and uh, mischievous. And he in integrates all of that throughout his poetry in a way that keeps me captivated anyway. So I've been listening to his poetry, and one of the things that really stood out was this idea that unity, this idea of uh, melting into reality and losing the sense of self is always kind of, or often found through the grinder of something unpleasant or something suffering or some, some form of suffering. It's not necessarily through some overwhelmingly pleasant experience. And that can be the case too, of course. There are all kinds of different doorways into this insight. Um, but he was talking about uh, the what is a Sufi. And I, I'm not super clear on what a Sufi is other than it sounds like some kind of a spiritual. You might substitute maybe like a, a monk or something like that. Just maybe an ancient Persian monk kind of thing. So what is a Sufi? And... His answer was, a Sufi is someone who smiles when disaster is happening. Someone who experiences joy in the face of tragedy and misery. And that right there is why someone would be intrigued to form a meditative practice. 